Thank you for tuning in to the Pops Podcast. Kishore is back in Matthew for another great message, so we hope you enjoy the episode. So today, momentous, we are going to turn a chapter from chapter 9 to chapter 10 today. Yes! We don't get to say that very often, so I just want to make that exciting. But before we get to chapter 10, we're going to just get the, the preamble to chapter 10, which were the last few verses of chapter 9. So let's look at that real quick. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And he, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We left off, we finished that section last time, and I hope that some of you guys have had the same feelings as me as when I've been in crowds recently, and I look around these crowds, I see a harvest field. And I see laborers amongst that field who are there to do what the Lord has called. And here we are looking at Matthew, end of Matthew 9, Matthew's recording all of this as if it happens all in one day. You know, the Sermon on the Mount gets completed, Jesus goes and he does all these healings, that's Matthew 5 through 9, and then he's surrounded by crowds of people. And we talked about before how he was not in a hurry, in fact, he, had, he stopped and he had compassion on the crowd. Now here is a pops, pop quiz. What was the word for compassion? From like, ooh, in Greek, that's a hard word. Splanknitsomai. Yes, you got it. Splanknitsomai. Okay. It means, we talked about last time, if you weren't here, just listen to the podcast. It's more than just simple, like, compassion. Oh, I feel bad for this person. In fact, what I discovered as I was thinking about this word, when I was in medical school, they would talk about the blood vessels that serve the, the gut, like the stomach and intestines, and they're called the splanknic vessels. And I never even thought about it, but I looked it up, and sure enough, that's where this word compassion comes from. It's a love from the gut. It's, a, it's like it's coming out from Jesus over to those people. It's deep within a love. And when Jesus saw this crowd, that's how he was moved. He was moved from deep within himself because he saw how lost they were. But rather than go himself, Jesus, to go by himself and respond, now is the first time really we're seeing where he turns to his disciples. And he says to his disciples, as he says to us, go and bring them to me. Because what he sees is a harvest waiting to be reaped for his glory. But at the end of chapter 9, it's, not, it's no longer where Jesus is saying, now let me show you what I'm going to do. He's saying, now let me show you what you can do through me. He wants these disciples to go out and do the things that they have witnessed. And you would think that King Jesus would have said, let me find 12 of the, the greatest guys, the most spirit-filled guys, these guys who are high atop the status ladder. Let me go send them out because people will listen to them, but he doesn't. And we'll see tonight that he actually, his inner circle, were just regular folks, just like many of us in here, just regular guys. So let's see what it says. Matthew 10, 1. It says, And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So Matthew starts this chapter by saying Jesus calls the twelve disciples to him. But this is not their initial calling, we know, because we've seen these disciples earlier in chapter 9. He's, he's already called them to him, but now something different is happening here tonight in this, in this chapter 10 verse. The word that's used is proskaleo. So kaleo means call. Proskaleo means called to him, meaning that he's not saying, hey, I never knew you before, come and join me. He's saying, 
I know you guys. Come closer. I've got something really important I want to share with you. So he's physically telling them to come closer. That's what that word called to him, proskaleo, means. And we see that these 12 disciples, all throughout the Gospels, were closer to him than any other of the disciples. There were many disciples around him. I mean, there were crowds around him. But these 12 were the closest to him. And why the number 12? I think we've mentioned this in the past in Passover. It's been a little while. Because in Jewish culture, 12 has a very special significance. It's a, it, it means perfection. When you see the number 12, it means that's exactly the amount that is required to do the perfect thing that God wants to do. And we see it with the 12 sons of Jacob in the Old Testament who become the 12 tribes of Israel. And those 12 tribes go and spread the news of the Lord in the Old Testament to all the people of Israel. So now these 12 disciples that Jesus is calling are going to carry the torch of this new Israel, God's people, from every nation and every tongue from now until all of eternity. God is calling these 12 to do what the 12 tribes originally were called to do. Now these disciples are going to begin. So it says here in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Matthew tells them the reason that he calls the 12 to him, because now what he's going to do, he's going to, he's going to give them his authority. And that word is exousia. Exousia, it sounds like authority, doesn't it? It sounds powerful. He's giving them his authority, his exousia. This word is only seen three prior times in Matthew. Matthew 7, 28 to 29, it says, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had exousia, who had authority, not as their scribes. Matthew 8, 9, it says, For I too am a man under exousia, under authority, with soldiers under me. Matthew 9, 6 to 9, 8 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has exousia on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such exousia to men. You see, each and every one of those examples, before we get to this point where Jesus is now going to share his exousia, his power, his authority with those disciples, each of those examples were talking about Jesus' power. Now you might say the Matthew 8 verse is the centurion saying that he has power, but the reason he's saying that is because he's saying, my authority is nothing compared to your authority, Jesus. We remember that from when we went through Matthew 8. So all of these are talking about the unbelievable authority that Jesus has, this exousia that he has. And now he is transferring that to his disciples and he's saying that you will now have the ability to do all the things that you've just seen me do all throughout my time here. Now you're going to be able to do these same things, these healings, these exorcisms, these things that Jesus has been doing. And as we get to the next season of Pops, winter Pops, as we guess we're going to be calling it, he's going to send the 12 disciples out to put these things into practice. So tonight what I wanted to do, he starts this list by giving these 12 new disciples a title, a title that's only used once in all the Gospel of Matthew, Apostles. Verse 2, it says, The names of the 12 apostles are these. It's the only time he uses this word apostolos in his Gospel. That word means messenger or one sent on a mission. Matthew is showing that these 12 are going to do something that nobody at this, to this point in the gospel had ever done. They're going to take the authority of God and they're going to bring it out into the harvest fields that Jesus was just showing them. And they were going to be trusted 
to put God's power into action. And that was going to require some boldness and some courage to know that God's authority, His exousia, was with them. And I think that's a big challenge for all of us in here today, that if we call ourselves disciples of Christ, then He has done the same thing for us. He has said to you, My Holy Spirit resides within you. My authority resides within you. Now you need to trust Me and go and put these power, put this authority on display. So let's look at these disciples more closely today. So for most of tonight, we're going to actually look at the first four in this list, the two sets of brothers, because that's the ones who've had the most written about them within the Gospels. So continuing verse 2, it says, First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So Simon, otherwise known as Peter, is intentionally described as first. That word is protos. Protos means foremost, the chief, the principal, the most important of the disciples. So we see this in all the Gospels that Jesus clearly put Peter in a space of highest authority over the twelve. And you have to ask yourself why. Like what is it about Peter that would make Jesus look at him and say, you, fisherman, you're the one that's going to be the one who I'm going to call first, Protos, the number one of all of these twelve disciples. I think he's thinking about us. When he does that, Jesus is thinking about us. He's saying, he's saying, look, Peter is going to be one that these guys at Pops, they're going to identify with this guy. Because he's going to make a ton of mistakes, Peter. And he's going to make a ton of unbelievably powerful statements as well. And in that, he has successes, he has failures, just like all of us do in our life. And if we've been in church for any length of time, we've probably heard a sermon that involves something that Peter said or did. Because he tries so hard to please Jesus. And in fact, we see in Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17, it says, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then a few verses later, he's called Satan by Jesus because Jesus says to him, I'm going to have to die in order to complete this mission that I'm on. I'm going to have to die. And Peter takes him aside, it says in Matthew 16, 22 to 23. So just what? Three verses later, he says, Peter takes him aside and rebukes him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Within three verses, he messes up, right? He makes this bold statement that nobody had yet made, that you are the Son of God. And then he goes around, and next thing you know, he's like, but no, 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 you can't die. I'm going to rebuke you, God, <laughs> for, for saying you're going to die, right? And a couple chapters earlier in Matthew 14, verses 28 to 29, it says, Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Wow! He walks on top of the water. He goes to get to Jesus. And then he focuses on his doubt. He focuses on his fear. He falls into the water because he loses his focus. And it says in Matthew 14, 30, just a verse later, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. I think it's these complexities, these extremes in Peter's personality that at least everybody in this room probably can identify in some way, shape, or form. There are some days where I'm like, oh, yes, I got it, Lord. I figured it out. This is perfect. This is exactly what I'm supposed to do to show your love to this person or how to show grace to this person or whatever. And then like two minutes later, some, you know, crass word comes out of my mouth. And I'm like, what? What happened? Just like ten minutes ago, I was on good, on doing, doing it well, right? So this is what we know. We know this about 
Peter. We know that he had his faults. We know that he had his successes. We know that he was a fisherman. We know that he was married. We know that he lived in Galilee. And because he was a Jewish uh, boy, probably since he was a young boy, he was raised up learning the Old Testament or what he would have called the Hebrew Bible. And through his knowledge of this Hebrew Bible, he would have known the promises that God was making to his people, that he was going to be the one that was going to come and rescue his people, both externally but also internally from their sins, that God himself had promised in the Old Testament, I'm coming, I'm coming to save you, to rescue you. And much like today, we're awaiting the second coming of our Lord Jesus. And, and, and just like that, Peter probably was thinking, okay, the Messiah is going to come someday. I don't know when that's going to be. It may not even be in my lifetime, but it's going to be someday. Kind of like how many of us maybe think about Jesus coming back again. But it was actually his brother Andrew who was the first one to be convinced that he found the Messiah. It says that in John 1. John 1, 35 to 37, and then 40 and 42, it says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and so they followed Jesus. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So just imagine you're Peter in this account, right? Just imagine what it would have been like for him in this moment. It would be like your friend coming up here to Pops now, right? Running up the hill saying, Guess what? There's someone playing Frisbee golf down there. And he says he's Jesus. And he says he's returned. And you're thinking, You're crazy, dude. You ran all the way up the hill to do that, but oh, right. oh, you might go to appease him and just be like, let me just show you that this guy's not Jesus. And you go down the hill and you meet this supposed Jesus, right? And this person says to you, nice to meet you. I'm Jesus. And listen, from now on, I'm going to call you the rock, which is not such a bad idea. I guess I wouldn't mind being called the rock, right? I mean, Dwayne Johnson's not that bad of a body to kind of wish you had, right? But I don't think I'm going to go down to the Social Security office and change my name to The Rock officially just based on that one interaction with this person who says his name is Jesus. Instead, I might even be a little suspicious that perhaps Western Psych, you know, with all the construction going on down in Oakland, maybe they accidentally let somebody out. That would be kind of where I would be thinking on my initial impression of who this person may be. And I'm thinking Peter probably had very similar thoughts in John 1. It's one thing to claim to be the Messiah, which is what Jesus was doing here, but it's something totally different to actually be the Messiah. So while we know that Andrew was convinced right off the bat that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, Peter at this point was not ready to give his life to him. And that was Peter's first encounter with Jesus. The next encounter with Jesus that he had is one that we've looked at here already at Pop, so I'm not going to go into much detail. It's the healing of Peter's mother-in-law from her bout with whatever illness was. Maybe it was the original COVID-19, COVID-00-19. I don't know, right? Someone get that joke. All right. Um, but now, I know that not every guy in this place has probably had the greatest relationship with their mother-in-law, perhaps. You know, I've always had a great relationship with my mother-in-law. In fact, sometimes I'll say to a guy, be like, oh, my man, my mother-in-law is an angel. And they'll say, dude, you're lucky. Mine's still alive. Right? I mean, this is like, <laughs> I got to be careful. I got to be careful. They may listen. No, I really do. I love my mother-in-law. I do. I do. But, but, but somehow, Peter 
Or perhaps Peter's wife, I don't know, goes to Jesus and says to him, I, I have a need. My, my mother, my mother-in-law is sick and she needs healing. And so we saw this in Matthew 8 earlier, but here's what it says in Luke, the same thing being described. Luke 4, 38 to 39, it says, And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. So again, let's put ourselves in Peter's position here. This mother-in-law goes from a severe illness, perhaps she was on her way to dying, and now she's gone immediately to like baking like chocolate chip cookies or something for them. I mean, it's like this dramatic turnaround in her life. And Peter's wife is probably ecstatic about this, right? Her mother is now healed. And we all know if you're married in this room, if your wife is happy, right? Happy wife, happy life. I mean, this is really good stuff. And so we're probably thinking at this point, Peter's brother Andrew, Peter's wife, have all come to recognize, I would think at this point, that there is a Messiah among them, and his name is Jesus. But somehow, Peter, I don't think even in this moment, because we're going to see what happens in Luke here in a second, I don't think he really gets it still. He might be starting to question a little bit, but maybe he's thinking, ah, it must have been that last medicine that she, she took, the last herbal thing that she swallowed. Maybe the doctor is making her better. Maybe she was already on her way to getting better, and, and, and you know, Jesus just kind of was around at that time. And trying to rationalize things away, I think we probably do that a lot in this room. I know I do. But I think it's time for us, right, as Pops men's, for us to not be people who give glory to anyone else than, other, than, than who it is actually due, and that is to God, our Father, right? He is the one that brings every good and perfect gift into our life. So why are we bothering to give praise and glory to anyone else but Him? And you might say, but the doctor really did do a good job. And you could say, praise God that that doctor was equipped with the knowledge to be able to bring whatever the medicine or, or therapy that was needed for my loved one, because it is always God behind these good and perfect gifts. So Peter has had these two significant encounters. Peter's brother and his wife are probably thinking, like, what is it going to take for Peter to finally understand who Jesus is? But you see, the Lord's plan, he wasn't getting nervous for, about that Peter's not going to come to him. The Lord had a plan, and he knew everything was coming into place exactly like he would hope. So let's go back to Peter here, the next chapter of Luke, Luke 5, 1 through 3. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So at this point it says that the crowds had gotten so large that they were pressing in on him. That word is epikimai, which literally means that these people were lying on top of him, is what that word actually means. Like they were so close to Jesus, he had no space, because they were so hungry to hear the word of God from Jesus. And Jesus just happens to show up on the very shore where Peter and his partners, James and John, would be found. And it certainly doesn't look like a great day for them from an earthly perspective because they just finished an entire fruitless night of fishing. And not a fishing expedition like you go out with your buddies and you're like just hanging out and maybe you catch a fish or two and throw them back or whatever. This was their livelihood. So a night of not catching any fish would have hurt the pocketbook in some way or another. And I'm sure it would have hurt their pride as well. So I'm really certain that Peter was probably not feeling great that morning. 
He was dirty, tired, angry after a long night's work that yields absolutely nothing. And here comes Jesus, and he brings this massive crowd. And without even a request, he just climbs into Peter's boat, and he tells him to push off into the water so he can address the crowd. And Peter does it. And there are a lot of sermons that focus on Peter's obedience, and I agree. He was quite obedient in this moment. But you have to ask yourself, why? Like, why, after a long night of this, why would Peter have done this? Why wouldn't he have just said, Jesus, go to the other boat. Go to James and John's boat. Why did you come into this boat? And I think, as I've read about this over the last few weeks, was that there was a cultural thing here that we miss if we don't understand. When somebody does you a favor, like healing your loved one, for example, that just happened a few verses ago, when, some, when that same person comes and asks you a favor within that Jewish culture, you don't say no. You just do it. So Jesus is coming and saying, hey, I need you to push off into the water. And after this long and tiring night, and they're washing their nets, and they're saying their goodbyes, and they're hoping for better luck the next night, here's Jesus telling them to push off, do this extra work for me, Peter, to guide and steer the boat, to keep it steady on the shoreline. Right? Which would have been probably the hardest place to keep that boat steady as the waves are starting to, you know, push in. But yet Peter's got to sit there and row or whatever it is that they had to do to keep that boat steady. So it says in the next two verses, Luke 5, 4 through 5, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. You can just feel Simon Peter's frustration here, right? He's fatigued, this long night, he's, now he's rowing the boat to keep Jesus' sermon able to be preached to this crowd. And Jesus is clearly not a fisherman, he's a carpenter, a man who worked with his hands, and he's telling Peter to push the boat out further. And, Jen, and then you just washed all these nets, but you know what? Throw them in again. Catch, catch some fish. Now I'm no fisherman. In fact, I'm not invited on fishing trips because I'm very loud. And I've been told that if you're very loud, that's not great for the fish. And there's this crowd that Jesus, the non-fisherman, brings who are very loud as well. And Peter's like, what? You want me to throw, out into the, throw this net out? And then all these people are here, and it's daytime, and the fish can see these nets, and you're telling me to go into the deep, but what I've read about the Sea of Galilee is like the fish are closer to the shore, where the, where, where the, um, the shoreline, where the oxygen-rich water is there, and so he's telling him to do all these things and telling this professional fisherman to do exactly the opposite of what would make sense to him. And again, complete obedience, Peter's response, because he does what Jesus tells him to do. But here's something interesting, is that his response was actually a snippy one. It's one that the original readers would have understood completely, because when he says master to Jesus, that word is epistatis, which means like boss or chief but in a kind of a semi-derogatory, not derogatory, but like a, a familiar kind of sense. Like, hey boss, if you want me to do it, I'll do it. Hey chief, whatever, you want me to try it. Like a, like a teenage kind of response. I know those responses really well these days. So, so he's, I, don't, I think he's completely unconvinced that Jesus has any idea what he's talking about, but yet he does it. So let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, and when he had done this, or I'm sorry, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. So Peter's obedience, potentially reluctant, is rewarded with this tremendous catch of fish. And there's an obvious truth there, but I think there's a different vantage point that we can see is that Peter initially is saying, I'm not going to catch anything, whatever you want, chief. But he's going to catch something, so much something that his net can't even hold how much is coming in? 
Like to put this in modern terms, it's like if you were at a slot machine, not that anybody in here, you know, you're good, you're good people, right? But some of us have been to a, to a casino and you see a slot machine and you put the coin in there and you pull the lever and the things all line up and all of a sudden, like hundreds of dollars of coins are flying out of that thing. And you're like, oh my gosh, it's not stopping. There's more, I need more cups, I need more cups. And this is what's happening here with these fish. Like Peter's eyes, if it was a cartoon, it would have been like these two dollar signs kind of thing. And then it says, Peter signals to the partners, James and John, in the other boat. And that word, katanuo, means a, a head nod. So it's not like he's saying, hey, James and John, get over here, man. There's like slot machines putting out all these fish. No. He's like, shh, don't tell anyone. Get over here. There's a ton of fish. Why? Because he doesn't want anyone else to come and take this windfall from them. He wants to keep this whole bounty of fish to themselves. In fact, if he could have done it without James and John, perhaps he would have done that too, because he wants more and more and more. And I think there's a message in there for us today. How many of us have been trapped in the desire of more, more, more? There's this greed and this lure of money, and these are sins that Jesus spoke about way more than the other sins that Christians tend to focus on. Why? Because we like to focus on other people's sins, not our own. But as I was reading this and realizing the head nod aspect of it, like, don't tell anyone. There's a ton of stuff coming out here, but I don't want anyone else to know. It made me think, if my boss was to say to me tomorrow, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a million dollars at the end of today, but if you tell anyone else, that million gets split between everyone else who finds out. In my mind, I'm thinking, if one person finds out, they're going to tell one person, they're going to tell one person, next thing I know, my million's going to be split however many different ways. And I would probably be really, really quiet that day for the first time in my life. People would have suspected something. <laughs> but that's greed. Right? That's greed, and it's within our hearts, and it's what our friend Peter is dealing with in this moment, and, and, and God knew that. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen there. And it says, they came, and they filled both the boats, and they began to sink. So here's Peter finally recognizing, wait a minute, this is never going to stop. This fish, this, this bounty is going to keep on coming. And in fact, if I try to keep all of this to myself, I'm going to sink. And he's realizing that if he chooses after the worldly things, like money, he's going to drown in that sin, in that greed. But he recognizes that what he really needs is the source of the bounty, not the bounty itself. And so it says in verses 8 through 11, it says, And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You see, this is uh, the power of Jesus. To make Peter a sold-out believer in the Messiah. You know, they, they, most Bibles will title this section of Scripture, The Miraculous Catch. But I don't think the fish were the miraculous catch in this day. I think many of us in here can, can, can identify with having been a miraculous catch. That you were so far away from God that how in the world are you even here on a Thursday night at Pops? How in the world are you standing up, I'm thinking to myself, in front of all of these guys, given the way that your life was headed, the direction you were going? There was a miraculous catch one day in 1999, and there was a miraculous catch to bring every single one of you guys here. Amen? That's the beauty of God. That's the miraculous catch. And when it says you will from now on catch men, 
The word is a different word than when he says go out and catch fish. That catch is the word for like you catch something and it's dead when you bring it in. Intentionally, Luke says that you, in Jesus' words, that when you go, you will catch men. That word is catch them alive. And that's what we've been caught, brothers. We've been the miraculous catch alive because of what he has done. All right, I'm going to promise you I'm not going to go through this much detail on all 12 disciples because there isn't that much detail on all 12 of the disciples. But I want to spend a little bit of time on James and John, and then we'll quickly go through the other ones. So James and John, right, they witness this happening to Peter in the water. They witness that miraculous catch, and their heart is changed as well because now we see that they leave everything to go along with Peter and Andrew to follow Jesus. And in the Gospel of Mark, to give you a sense of where they come from, they are given the name Sons of Thunder, it says, James, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder. Like these were powerful, manly men, you know, James and John, just like all of us in here, of course. Powerful, manly men. And Luke, it says this about these two manly men. Luke 9, 52 to 56, it says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But those people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. You see, James and John, like the Jews of that day, hated the Samaritans. They were their enemies. We talked about this before here many times. And they want Jesus' permission to do like a sons of thunder kind of moment. right? They want to bring down the, the fire from heaven on these Samaritans. But Jesus is not having any of that. And he rebukes them, but he doesn't give up on them. In fact, he brings them eventually deep within the inner circle, right? So there's 12 we talked about, but there's three that are the inner circle that get to witness many things. I'm not going to read all of the verses here with you guys tonight, but we see that in Matthew 17, Peter, James, John are up there for the transfiguration to witness that. In Mark 5, we see when the young girl died, which we looked at uh, a few weeks ago, when that young girl died, Peter, James, John were there at the resurrection of this girl. Mark 14, we see at the Garden of Gethsemane, there's three guys there when Jesus is in anguish before he goes to the cross, and it's Peter, James, and John. So these three play a very tight, close role to Jesus. They're the inner three. And brothers, I know this, that being close to Jesus, it always makes our heart change to be more like him. And the same thing happens here with James and John. You see, James was so convinced, after spending all this time with Jesus as the inner three, he was so convinced of who Jesus was that James is the one who becomes the first martyr for the faith. I don't know if you guys remember this, but in Acts 12, verse 2, it says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So, so James goes from being son of thunder, called on fire from heaven, to one who said, I'm willing to die for my Savior. And his brother John goes on to write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. These are letters that are known as the epistles of love. These guys go from sons of thunder to becoming sons of the Most High God because God's love changed them from within. Praise God. Now let's look at Philip and Nathaniel very briefly. Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel is sometimes called Bartholomew in, uh, in certain Gospels because Bartholomew, anytime you see Bar 
and then, uh, and then the name, it means son of, and then that's the name. So that's why in the earlier verse we saw Simon bar Jonah, that means Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. So Bartholomew means son of Ptolemy, which was Nathaniel's father, Bartholomew. Okay, so John 1, 43 to 46, it says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Which I believe is a beautiful tagline for Pops as we've thought about how, to, how do we invite people. You say, Come and see. Come and see. You see, Philip was likely friends with Andrew, Peter, James, and John, the four we've been talking about, because they all grew up in the same region. And Philip gets called by Jesus, and just like Andrew did earlier, he's like, oh my gosh, i got to tell somebody. So he goes and runs and tells his friend Nathaniel. And so that's how those two join the crew of the Twelve. Now Thomas is the next one. Thomas, he's most well known for being doubting Thomas, as we know, from John 20, where he says, I'm not going to believe until I can see the, the, the holes in his hands and, and be able to see that for myself, the hole, the hole in his side. But he also, besides being a doubter in that moment, was a devoted follower of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was going to see Lazarus, he said, you know, Lazarus has died. Thomas is the one who says, let's go, that we may also die with him. Thomas was ready to die for his beliefs. He was ready to die for his Savior. So I don't know so much that I would call him doubting Thomas as much as I would call him, just like any of us, went through his ups and downs in life, but certainly was one that was sold out for Jesus as well. All right, let's look at Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus. I'll tell you why we're looking at them together. So we, Matthew in Mark 2, verse 14, it says, As he passed by... He saw Levi, Levi as we've learned before is also the name of Matthew. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So if you go back and, and, and listen to two Pops podcasts from actually exactly a year ago today, um, that we talked about the calling of Matthew. It took two um, uh, pop sessions to go through that because it is such a powerful calling. But I'm only going to bring up one additional potentially interesting point here is that Matthew, it says, Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And there's another uh, disciple in this crew who's a son of Alphaeus, and that's James. James listed as a son of Alphaeus. So not, not James, the brother of John, the son of thunder that we talked about. This is James, the son of Alphaeus. He's sometimes called James the Younger, and they think probably to keep him separate from the other James who is that son of thunder we were talking about before. But the fact that they're both called son of Alpheus is interesting, that perhaps they also may have been brothers. Nobody knows for sure, but it's interesting that both of them have the same name for their father, and it's not as common a name as some of the other names in that era. Okay, there's another disciple, Thaddeus. We don't really know much about him, in fact, except for the fact that his name is also uh, Judas, so there, he must have had two different names, Judas, but not, it's funny because his name is sometimes called Judas, not Iscariot, because they want to make sure that you don't think he's that guy, because that guy, Judas Iscariot, we're going to get to with your grandkids uh, in a few decades uh, when we're teaching in Matthew 26, but it says there, then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, will you give me what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Even non-Christians, even before I knew Jesus, I knew Judas, who was the traitor. We knew that always. And one day, as I said, we'll be 
and we'll be able to, to, to really go into depth uh, into Judas. I don't want to do that tonight, but for now, I just want to kind of be amazed. You know, I, I know your church is going through, Craig, the, uh, uh, the uh, John 13 through, through uh, 17 together in your church, and one of the most beautiful things is the fact that Judas is among the disciples whose feet Jesus washed. The person who's going to hand him over to be killed, his feet get washed by the Savior. And I think that's an amazing thing. And again, one that we'll look into more detail next time when we talk about Judas Iscariot someday in the near or distant future. Last one, and then we're going to close, is Simon the Zealot. So Simon the Zealot is one apostle where you don't see any descripting verses about him in any of the Gospels. He's always listed when they give you the list of here are the disciples of Jesus. But all we know about him is that his name is Simon the Zealot. And what does that mean? It's like having a title. It's like Johnny the Republican or Billy the Democrat, right? It's like his identity was in his political views. Because the Zealots were people who wanted change and they wanted it now and they were going to do anything they could to bring about political change and so here's simon the zealot i'm sure seeing jesus coming and doing all these things that are upsetting the religious authority of the time and he's probably thinking this guy wait till he gets to the roman part of upsetting them and then he's going to take them down and he wants to be a part of that that's what a zealot would have wanted they want to take israel back for god and they want to remove all of these societal influences around them that were, that were bringing their great nation down. And he would have thought probably people like tax collectors, like our buddy Matthew, would have been those people, those traitors, that are taking down our country. And he would have been willing to resort to any violent method necessary to get what he wanted. So brothers, this is what I want to leave us with tonight. See, we've got an election season ahead. And we've got another president election <laughs> coming up in a couple of years after this. And all throughout this, I know it's going to be a replay of before with the news media and whatever other outlets you listen to or read. They're going to tell the zealots and they're going to tell the tax collectors of today how they should vote. And not only that, they're going to demonize and make the other side seem like they're enemies. And they're going to tell you how that other side is bringing down this country. I'm going to leave us with this challenge. This challenge is that we would not fall prey to that. And I know many of us did, and I'm not keeping myself out of that bubble. I mean, I, I know that the politics of the last election really brought some significant challenges into churches and significant challenges in relationships between people, and I don't want that to happen in this place. Because, brothers, we are Pop's men, and we need to remember what we are taught in this place, which is that the Lord is telling us that our citizenship is not primarily in any nation of this world, but our citizenship is in heaven. And our political views cannot define us. Our names and our characters cannot have a political affiliation attached to them as, oh, that's what describes that guy. Jesus Christ is the only thing that is allowed to define us. If somebody wants to call you something, let them be calling you Dave, follower of Jesus. Keith, disciple of Christ. If there's going to be a title that comes after our name, let it not be with some temporary political affiliation. Let it be the eternal Savior that defines us. And we in this room, we may vote differently. We might feel strongly on different sides of whatever political topic. But our unified bond in Jesus is going to bring that curiosity to the non-believers who see us. These guys who are throwing frisbees, I don't think they can't hear us. <laughs> I think they can hear us just fine. 
And I hope that when they hear us, and when they hear us proclaiming the good news, that they get curious. How is it that these guys are so unified in the midst of this tumultuous whatever election time? How is it that these guys love each other like they do? Why is this so important? Last verse, John 17, verses 20 to 23, Jesus' prayer. I do not ask for these also, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So may the Lord give us this unity, even in the midst of different opinion. And amongst the men in this place, let there be no divisions between liberal and conservative or Republican or Democrat or candidate one or candidate two. Instead, let us be a people who are defined by our affiliation to the kingdom of God and let people recognize that in us. Amen? Amen. Much like those fish, God's love for us is so abounding that once we've experienced it, we simply cannot contain ourselves. If we've truly experienced the miracle Jesus has given us, our boats will sink if we don't share God's love with others around us. His love is overwhelming, and I encourage you to take a moment and let that just, well, sink in. That's all we have for you this week. Thanks for listening, and God bless.